Well, we are in the midst of a sermon series called Something Beautiful for God, which is a series on a biblical understanding of human sexuality. And we have been spending the first, really, 12 weeks here in Genesis 1 and 2. And you'll find our scripture text to this this morning to us from Genesis 2, verses 20 through 25. Hear God's word to us this morning. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The word of the Lord. Pray with me. Oh, Father, help us to understand that Jesus is our bridegroom, and he is a bridegroom that is coming after his bride, a bride that is dirty and broken and impure, and that's where all of us are. That's where we all find ourselves before the bridegroom. But this bridegroom moves towards us and not away from us. And all of our shame and nakedness and insecurity help us to know that in Jesus Christ we stand naked and unashamed, clothed in his righteousness. And so this morning as we hear your word, may we hold on to that truth and hear that truth deep in our hearts by the power of your Spirit, and in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Aristotle, the philosopher, says, the soul never thinks without an image. The soul never thinks without an image. When the Bible instructs us on the meaning of marriage, it almost never uses commands and instructions. It uses images. And what we just read here is an image. It's history, but it's poetic history. The Bible doesn't give us how-tos on marriage. And if you try to approach marriage in a kind of how-to fashion, kind of the way you would approach sort of building furniture from Ikea or fixing a carburetor, you're you're not going to understand it. You can't approach marriage that way because marriage is a profound mystery, as Paul says. And to understand marriage, you have to understand it like you approach it like you would a poem or a great piece of art, a great symphony. You, you hear it, right, or you see it, and yet there's so much excess of meaning. There's so much layers and complexities. And our culture, when we think about marriage, if, if you're just taking how our culture forms us in the ways of marriage, our culture has what is really the equivalent of a stick figure image of marriage, <laughs> That's about as complex as it is. And it's a stick figure you can bend and twist in all kinds of different directions. But the biblical understanding of marriage is actually profound and lush, complex and beautiful and fleshly. (laughs) 
it is, it is magnificent and beautiful and glorious. And you're not going to understand it in one go through. You're not going to understand it in an entire lifetime. This morning I want us to reflect on this one image, very powerful image, which gets at the very center of the meaning of marriage, which is one flesh. And you might say that in our journey and reflection on the meaning of marriage and sexuality, we're entering into the Holy of Holies. In a sense, we are entering into the, the, deep, the deep and at times dark mystery of marriage. And with this statement that I want us to reflect on comes from, again, verse 23, I'll draw your attention. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. With this statement, we enter into the central mystery of marriage, but not only that, we enter into the central mystery of salvation itself. So I want us to reflect this morning on what does it mean to be one flesh? What is the meaning of this union of one flesh? And there's three aspects of one flesh that I want to draw your attention to that we learn from this story or from this image. To be one flesh is to be, enter into a life-altering union. To be one flesh is to enter into a comprehensive union. And to be one flesh is to enter into a liberating union. Now, whether you're married or not, or whether you ever get married, you have to understand the meaning of one flesh. Otherwise, you will never understand what it means to be a Christian. You'll never understand what it means to have a relationship with God. And so even though I'm going to be talking about marriage, in a sense, I'm also talking about what it means for all of us universally to enter into union with God, union with Christ. Paul, the apostle, in Ephesians 5, if you remember that he talks about husbands and wives, but he says this is a profound mystery, and I'm talking about Christ in the church. I'm talking about Christ and the people of God. And so don't tune me out if you're out there and you're not married or you're, you're not, oh, this is for married. Do not, because this is about all of us. So, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And here we see the condition for union, really. That first point is about the condition for union. And the condition for entering into the union of one flesh is to forsake. Before you can hold fast or cleave, as the old King James says, you have to leave. You have to forsake your father and mother, in order to enter into that union. And I think this is an important point at which to just stop and dwell for a few minutes. That very simple phrase, you have to leave, and it's a very strong word in the Hebrew. It's stronger. It has a sense of forsaking. You have to reject. You have to forsake those bonds and those relationships that have defined your identity since birth in order to enter into this new bond and union with your spouse. And I think it's important in, in, a, in our own culture, which is very individualistic and self-determining, um, family plays, even though a very significant role, not nearly as significant in ancient cultures where um, your family was everything. 
Your family was everything. It defined you from birth. It still is everything today. We just don't really live as it is. It defines you. It's the most important relationship and most identity-forming thing of your entire life. And what Scripture is saying is, okay, to enter into marriage means you break with that. There has to be a break from the traditional marriage ceremony that you find in the Book of Common Prayer. Many of you will know this. There's a point called the Declaration of Intent. It's before you make your vows, but it is a kind of vow. But it's one that's said before God, really. It's one that God is officiating. And it says that you ask, as a pastor, I ask, you know, each, the bride and the groom, will you, groom, love her and comfort her, honor her and keep her in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, be faithful to her as long as you both shall live. Will you forsake all others to be faithful? Because marriage is the kind of relationship that is utterly exclusive in its demands on our heart. Utterly exclusive. That nothing less than a forsaking is required to enter into it properly. As you heard from our, our sacred reading this morning, I put this in here for an important reason. The cost of discipleship. <laughs> Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Earlier this summer, I preached on um, the call of Abraham. And that call of Abraham, out of sort of his life of paganism and family, it begins with, go, leave. You have to leave all of this, and I will show you a place, right? And that part of, and this is where, again, marriage and discipleship are mutually illuminating. Because, in a way, there's a cost to marriage, and there's a cost to discipleship. You have to forsake you have to put your life, your whole life, on the altar to enter into this, both of these relationships. Now, the thing is this. Now, many of you, and oftentimes when you, when, and a lot of times when I'm doing premarital counseling, I'm talking to people, I mean, when you first enter into the sort of that engagement phase where you're sort of falling in love, you're willing to give up anything, right? Almost. You're really, I mean, that's the thing about love. And that's what, and and you have to, you know, there's a way that when you fall in love, right, and this is the true meaning of eros, right? It's not just sex, but it's, it's a kind of a falling in love. Love comes into our lives romantically as a kind of invasion that sort of breaks down all these walls and barriers and institutions in life and begins to start rearranging things. I mean, it's incredible to me. You, you've seen this. Maybe it's, you've experienced this. The things you're willing to do to rearrange your life in order to have the beloved in your life, right? See, that's how love... And, and so when I'm talking about forsaking, it's easy. For many of us, it's easy, initially at least. And it should be the same with our love for Christ, that the call to forsake, it's that your love for Jesus is just so great that all these other things pale in comparison. Just like as a spouse, when you fall in love, your love for your spouse is just so great that all these other loves become secondary, third. They're not the priority anymore of your life. Lewis, um, C.S. Lewis in his book, Four Loves, puts in his chapter on Eros, he says this, and I think this is very important. He says, Eros wants the beloved. Eros wants the beloved. Eros makes a man really want not a woman, 
but a particular woman. In some mysterious but quite indisputable fashion, the lover desires the beloved herself. Not the pleasure she can bring, but the beloved. See, that's the true nature of love, right? It's not just the falling in love. It's not love for love's sake, but it's the beloved. There's an object. It's not any woman. It's this woman. It's not any man. It's this man, right? It's this Christ, right? And I think the danger of eros in our culture, aside from the fact that we sexualize it, is that I think there's part of living in this sort of romantic, sentimental culture of ours is that oftentimes we just want to fall in love. We're in love with the idea of being in love because to fall in love, right, is an incredible experience. It's incredible, right? And oftentimes I think we just want that experience regardless of who the beloved is. And I think the real danger, and this is, I just put this as a parenthetical sort of caution for us, there's a tendency for us to often use people. <laughs> this is why the Bible is so sort of firm in how it talks about the boundaries of sexuality. Because if you don't respect those boundaries sexually, you use people. You're horny. Okay, you both agree, so you get together. But you're using one another. You're not loving one another. We do this emotionally as well. Christians do this, notoriously, who date. And very often, they, they, we, you, you, you can defraud one in, in, in you because you just want to be in love. Or you want this experience. But the beloved, as a person, as an other, often doesn't play a big role. Now, let me make some applications about this principle of leaving and cleaving that I think are very important. The first thing about this leaving and cleaving principle, this life-altering reality of this union is this, is that it means the rearrangement fundamentally of all of your, your significant and primary relationships of your life, right? So when you, you're looking, you're engaged, you're probably already, you're, you're beginning to think in that period of engagement about, okay, how is this relationship going to start to reorder my life, the priorities I have, in terms of my relationship to my parents, my relationship to my friends, my hobbies, all these different things. It realigns them. It rearranges them such that the beloved is the priority, is the center from which all, everything else is ordered. And there's a couple of ways that I think this plays itself out practically in our lives. One is this, is, and I, you know, when I, you know, I do premarital counseling, I usually, I always talk with couples about this principle and I always ask questions about their family backgrounds and their parents and how their parents, you know, how their parents got along and what their relationship was like because there's no way that when you marry, you're always bringing in other things into your marriage. You're bringing in your parents into your marriage. And that's not always a bad thing. I mean, we're always shaped and formed by that. But oftentimes we go into marriage and we're not really seeing that, you know, our expectations of our spouse are often part of our experience of growing up in a certain kind of home. And part of marrying is saying, you know what? There's good things, but, you know, we are creating something new together, right? And you kind of have to put those things in parentheses a little bit as you begin to come together. There's a lot of deep application we could make here. Um, But there is a way that our parents often, and parents, you know this, there's a tension, right? (laughs) When your kids get married, it changes your relationship. And sometimes it makes it kind of difficult, right? 
And there's a tendency sometimes we have to worry, and parents I think are very conscious of this, maybe not always so, of not meddling too much or not wanting to rush in to help their kids when they're having problems. And again, you have to respect your, your children in their marriage, right? They are their own people. And in a way, they have to own their marriage and their responsibilities. That doesn't mean you don't have a role. And for you as well, those of you who are married and who have very close, deep relationships with your parents, have to respect your spouses and how this is your marriage. And you have to be somewhat cautious about the extent to which you allow your parents to come in and have input and sort of shape and guide how things play themselves out. This is a source of tons of conflict in marriage. I just want you to know, I mean, some of you know this. I'm just going to put it out there. And I want you to, here's the principle. Think about it. Talk about it. But there's another way, I think, that marriage, this believing and cleaving principle applies, and has less to do with our parents, as the fact that many of you and many of us, when we get out of the home, we're independent. We get married later in life. And you know what? What you've done is you've actually established your own household. You live by yourself, most likely, but you have freedom, you have independence, you have financial stability, you have your own routines, you have your own comforts, and then this person invades your life. And you're like, okay, how am I going to keep my freedom? How am I going to keep this life I really like, the comfort, the security, the sort of space I have? And the reality is, is you can't. You can't. Um, Don't think that you can keep your independent, self-determining, comfort zone, uh, privacy, life, and get married. You can't do it. You have to put it self-surrender, friends. That's what marriage is. It's a surrender of the self. You put yourself on an altar, and you give to the other, and that's both. It's mutual, the husband and the wife. I think a lot of singles pull back from marriage because they see that, and they're afraid of losing losing their freedom or, you know, not liking, you know, if it's not the perfect fit, right? But here's the thing. I just want to remind you of a principle, something I, a couple weeks ago, I talked about. You will never find yourself by yourself. You will only find yourself in relationship. It's only in commitment. It's only in giving yourself to another that you will ever find yourself. That's how God rigged it. It is when you are dying to yourself, when you are giving yourself away, when you are giving yourself to another, that you actually receive yourself. That's the paradox of discipleship. And it's true of marriage, and it's true of your life with Christ. But finally, on this one point, this, this leaving and cleaving principle means this. Not just as you enter into marriage, but actually as you live out your marriage, this means that your marriage is, always has to be the priority of your life, of earthly commitments, Aside from your, your relationship with Christ, which is never in competition with your marriage, to be sure, your marriage is the priority through the course of your entire life. This means your kids are not the priority of your life, the highest priority of your life. I know this is very hard. Your marriage is, this is going to sound so crazy, your marriage is more important than your kids. You can't make your kids more important than your marriage. If you do that, you actually harm your kids. The best thing you could do for your kids is to prioritize your marriage. Your career is not more important than your marriage. That doesn't mean you can't sort of go high and far with your career. But if there's points at which your career or your marriage might suffer because of certain career choices, you have to put your career second. 
your hobbies, your friendships. Again, this is the, it's the life-altering reality of marriage. It costs something, right? And yet, and this sounds like bad news, like I'm, but this is reality, right? And it's actually a good thing. When you prioritize your marriage and you give it the due that it needs, the other things in your life fit together beautifully. There's not a competition in terms of, I mean, there are choices you have to make. But you need to let your marriage be the priority of your life. And so that's, so marriage is a life-altering reality. And that means that when two people wed, it's not a matter of joining, like fusing together two worlds into one. It is abandoning two worlds in order to create something new. That's what it means to join in this union. That's the condition for entering into a comprehensive union of one flesh. So what does this union look like? What does it involve? So, marriage is a comprehensive union of husband and wife that is moral, emotional, vocational, and bodily. Marriage is a comprehensive union that is moral, emotional, vocational, and bodily. Now, I just want to kind of run through these. And I think there's a kind of progression to these and how this works itself out as in a, in a kind of real-time way. When the Scripture says that there was not found for Adam a fit helper for him, God brings all the animals to him, of course, and there's a sense in which God makes Adam to feel his loneliness, to feel his aloneness in the world. And then God creates the woman. And what is the woman? It's not just a sexual companion. The woman is... And it's not just a spiritual companion because God is there in the garden, right? It's perfectly, this perfect relationship with God. No, this is a moral companion. God creates a moral companion and that's what the essence of marriage is. And that's the ground floor and that's what our heart's deepest desire is for. When we talk about a soulmate, what you want and a soulmate, it's a moral companion. It's somebody that knows you Somebody who loves the things that you love. The the person who sees you for who you are. The person who draws you out. That's what it means to have a moral companion. And this is often, in the healthiest moments, you know, when we enter into relationships that lead to marriage, what resonates, what kind of precedes the falling in love point is, is this sense of common, yes, they get me, I get them. And there's something that goes deeper there, right? There's a soul resonance. But it's also an emotional bond. It's an an emotional union. And this is, of course, the the part of marriage that our culture in particular blows up and knows a lot and, and puts all of its emphasis on. But it's true. Marriage is a union of hearts, of love and affection around the union itself. And in this regard, marriage is very different from friendship. C.S. Lewis in in The Four Loves, again, he has, uh, I think, a very helpful distinction where he talks about friends. Friendship is a love of something you have in common. So I have friendships that are around, say, theology or coffee, you know, and we get together and we just talk about coffee. I know it's crazy, but there's just a friendship that generates about a common love for coffee or a common love for theology. But marriage is different. See, friends, friends look out at something they hold in common. Very rarely, now it's not always, but friends don't often talk about the relationship. Now, sometimes you do, but it's often like way later in a friendship. But marriage is different. 
Erotic love is different because it's facing one another. You're not looking out at something you have in common. You're looking at one another. You're looking. You're gazing into each other's eyes. So there's this union, this reality, and there's emotional bond, right? But marriage is also vocational. It's, a, it's vocational. It's a vocational union, which means that you share, you have a common work together. That's, that's the thing. That, that language of help me has a sense that you know, God puts Adam in the garden and he's alone. He needs help. <laughs> he needs help. He needs somebody to do this work of having dominion and authority, of working and keeping the garden, right? And so God makes a moral companion. He makes a helpmate. And that's what, when, when you get married, that's one of the things you do. You, you join together vocationally. And I don't, I don't want to tell you that word vocation. Think of it very deeply. You're, joining, you're creating a whole household. You're, you're joining your finances. You're joining everything, your vocations, like your aspirations in terms of education or career. And of course, children, which is a lot of work. But you have it in common. You have somebody to work with in the world. And I think the great joy, and this is the ordinary sort of quotidian, everyday joy of marriage is this, that you, you have somebody, you just have this common partnership and work. You're doing something together. But finally, there's this bodily union, which is the most sacred, the most mysterious, and the most explicit in our text. The two become one flesh, right? That's not just a metaphor. It is bodily. It is sexual. And that when these two bodies come together, ordinarily what happens is the generation and the creation of new life in the form of children. And it's incredible to think that children are a mixture of our bodies. Think about that for a minute. Mixing our bodies. You can look at our children, you can see aspects. That's profound, friends. And it's not sort of incidental to marriage, and it's not incidental to the reason or the purpose of marriage. Because again, I'll remind you that you, your body is your real self. What is true about the body is most true about you. And so that's why intimacy doesn't start with the body. True intimacy doesn't start with the body. If you start with the body, intimacy, there's false intimacy and there's illusion. But if you move towards that... And then you touch the body, then there's real, true intimacy and generative, creative power in the world. This idea of fruitfulness. Again, when we give our bodies to each other, we give our bodies in such a ways that others come alive in and around us. That's, that's what the power of marriage is that it's a life-giving force in the world, not just in a, pro, a strictly procreative sense, but there's this power and generativity of love for people to come alive in and around you in your love. So I think there's some implications for this, a couple, for how we think about marriage. And the first is this. Marriage is an objective reality. Marriage is an objective reality. It exists beyond the emotional state of those who are in it. This is a very different understanding of marriage than our culture has. Our culture, basically, its understanding of marriage is as emotional bond. And that as long as the two couples, the two, are into the marriage, right? 
It exists. But when that falls apart, the marriage falls apart. But the biblical world, God's understanding in the scripture is that marriage is an objective reality. We don't create it. God creates it. God says this is a marriage. He gives it reality in being. And I think one of the implications of this is that you cannot have, your vision of marriage cannot be that of mutual happiness. If you you enter into marriage thinking this is going to make me happy, and that this is the purpose of marriage, is to make me happy, you have fundamentally misunderstood the purpose and meaning of marriage. Because that is an understanding and a vision of marriage based upon merely an emotional bond. And the reality is this. If happiness is the goal of marriage, if happiness is why you enter in marriage, and happiness is what will keep you married, unless you're really lucky, you will not remain married. (laughs) Because that as a bond, it's like sort of gluing two pieces of wood together... And over time, the moisture and the heat of life will pull them apart. And I've seen this, you've seen this many times, right? See, the bond of marriage is covenantal. It's a vow that we take. And the happiness of marriage comes and goes. But there's something greater. I like what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. He says, marriage is more than your love for each other. It is that, friends, to be sure. (laughs) Marriage is more than your love for one another. In marriage, you are placed at a post of responsibility towards the world and mankind. And your love is your private possession, but marriage is more than something personal. It's a status. It's an office. Have you ever thought about marriage as a status and office? We talk about the office of president or pastoral office. Friends, your marriage is a status. It's a public reality that has goods that bless those beyond it, even those that you don't know. This is why the Book of Common Prayer says, in its preface to marriage, it says, Therefore marriage is not to be entered into unadvisedly or lightly, but reverently, deliberately, and in accordance with the purposes for which God instituted it. And this is the reason why the Bible is so utterly clear and utterly uncompromising in an uncomfortable way about the gravity of divorce. John Calvin says, he who divorces his wife tears from himself, half of himself. Tim Keller puts it differently. He says, divorce is a form of self-amputation. And my first sermon on Jesus' understanding of marriage I spoke rather briefly about divorce, which is a central part of that text. And one of the things I said is that you can't enter, you can't end in a marriage without creating fractions. Because the biblical math of marriage is one plus one equals one, right? So if you break a marriage apart, you create a fraction. You become less than one. You enter marriage as a whole person, but if you leave marriage, you leave as less than a whole person. Now, this was uh, very offensive to a number of people. And I didn't research, I could have spent more time qualifying it. But I want to ask this question. Now, Jesus says, That which God has joined, let no man tear asunder. That's the language. Rip apart. Let me ask you this question. If it is true that marriage is a comprehensive union, of one flesh, how is it possible to leave a marriage 
as a whole person. I want you to wrestle with that. Because I think sometimes our reaction comes from a failure to see how comprehensive and how serious the Bible is when it talks about the one fleshness of marriage. And friends, I don't say this as somebody who's sort of distant from the reality of divorce. One of my earliest childhood memories is my mom and brother and I driving away when I was five-year-old from my father's household. My wife also experienced divorce. So it's not as if I say these things to be mean to people who are divorced. And to be clear, friends, is there forgiveness after divorce? Yes. Is there restoration after divorce? Yes. Is there the possibility of new love after divorce? Yes. But is it possible to leave a marriage without a lifelong wound to yourself, to your spouse, and to your children? No, it is not. The law of marriage is one flesh. It's not just an idea. If you get married, whether you're a Christian or not, the direction your marriage will want to take you, like nature itself tries to take us, will be towards one flesh, because that's how God rigged it. Because that's, as human beings, how, what we need. We need that one flesh context in life to achieve the kind of intimacy our hearts so long for for marriage. Which is really the last point, and very briefly. This union is a liberating union, but it's a liberating union because of the fact that it is a comprehensive union first. I just want to draw your attention to the one verse. And the man and the wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The man and the wife were naked and they were not ashamed. Our heart's longing, friends, is to stand in the presence of another person, to be seen, to be naked, to be vulnerable, and not to be rejected, to not to be ashamed, but to be seen and known. And that, that's what we desire in life, all of us. And, and a good marriage begins to approximate that. It never does it perfectly. And I'm going to come back next week and talk about the meaning of this liberating union and intimacy. But the possibility of this intimacy is based on this deep communion that's covenantal, that's committed. And there, there's real communion. I heard somebody say the other day, which is so right, we live in an age of communication, but no communion. You might have hundreds of friends on Facebook. You might know tons of people on LinkedIn. You might have all kinds of friends. You're always texting and receiving calls and there's all these people. But do you have communion? How many do you have communion with? Heart communion that know you. Life-giving relationships. Let me close. I said at the beginning that you cannot understand the Christian life if you do not understand marriage. And I want to reflect with you for a moment just on what it means for us to call Christ the bridegroom. Christ is the bridegroom. We are his bride. He has come for us. And what is true for us in marriage is also true for him and us. He made 
His life, his, his union with us is a life-altering union. Think about what we, we celebrate, what will be coming up into Advent here. Christ comes from the Father, right? There's a sense in which His incarnation is Him forsaking His family. In a life-altering way, He who was God did not think equality of God as something to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taken on the very form of a servant. And on the cross, He dies, and what does He say? Father, my God, my God, why have You forsaken me? There's a sense of forsakenness at the very heart of Jesus' relationship with His Father. Why? To get a bride. And this is a comprehensive union. He doesn't just sort of come down in a body, beam down, and then just come back up as a spirit being. He takes on flesh. Bodily union, friends. Bodily union for all of eternity. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, will be Jesus of Nazareth. He will have first century origin, flesh and blood in heaven for all eternity. There's nothing more radical than that kind of union. But this union also is a liberating union. It is to know Christ, right? To know Christ is to be able to be in Him, to be clothed in Him, to not have to clothe yourself and to be able to be vulnerable and naked in the world and unashamed. And that is liberating, friends. Paul puts it this way, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, he is the bridegroom. He gave his life for us that we might be united with him in liberating love. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that the image that we leave with this morning is the image of the union that you created between us and yourself through the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. May this notion of him as our bridegroom not be merely a sentimental nicety, but be the source of our spiritual imagination as we seek to understand what it means to love and to follow you and to be united with you in this world. And so wherever we find ourselves this morning, oh Father, whether in marriages that are strong and healthy, whether in marriages that are struggling, or whether in marriages that have broken apart, or whether we find ourselves single and longing, help us to know, O oh Lord, that in Jesus Christ, Our heart's desire is met in you in a real way. We pray in the name of of our Savior. Amen.